Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to James, the third chapter. We want to talk about words and how words get us in trouble. I'm going to start off with, with just a little bit of a story. I, had, I was probably just in my last year of high school. My father had a hotel in the city here, and I had met him for lunch, and we went into one of the restaurants in his hotel, sat down, the young waiter came to the table and asked what we wanted to order. He obviously didn't know who my dad was, um, and so uh, the special of the day was Chicken Maryland. One of my favorite foods is food that I've never tried before. I'd never heard of Chicken Maryland, and so I decided I wanted Chicken Maryland. And so when he asked me what I wanted, I said, I would like Chicken Maryland. He looked at me, his lip curled a little bit like Elvis and said to me, there is no chicken, Maryland, you stupid puke. My father got up from the table, grabbed him by the arm, took him into the kitchen and released him from employment. Um, because he said to him, if you'll say that to me, I don't need you to say that to my customers. Didn't realize who he was. Our words have consequence, is my point here this morning, and I want you to be aware of that. We have a call on our church this year to make these times together count and to take personal initiative and grow and mature spiritually so that we're ready to be and practicing all that God has asked us to practice. And James takes quite a bit of space in this letter that he has written to those Christians that have been, those Jewish Christians that have been spread throughout the, uh, the world because of persecution. And he's writing them a letter and, and he says quite often, be careful. Make sure you're not careless. Make sure you're not sloppy in the way that you use your words. James, like other New Testament leaders and writers, understands the power that comes out of our words. He, he has seen his older brother, Jesus, uh, speak to demons. Nothing more than just say, you no longer have right or place here, and watched as the demons had fled. He had watched Jesus as he spoke to disease of every kind and all the symptoms, all the, all the causes disappeared. And so James realized right away that words matter. Words matter, that what we say, how we say it, to whom we speak, it all makes a difference. And so here in chapter 3, James comes to the family of believers around the world and says, I don't want you to be lazy. In chapter 2, he says, I don't want you to be lazy or useless, have a useless faith. But in chapter 3, he says, I don't want you to be lazy in what you say and how you talk. I, I, I want you to train yourself to be vigilant in getting a hold of the words that come out of your mouth and only allow life to come out. We go to James chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, Dear brothers and sisters, do not, or not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. James says, Family, I, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying here. I, I, I know that you admire and desire the gift of teaching. You've seen many good teachers, and so many of you have grown in the faith and have desired to become teachers in the church as well. 
However, I want you to hear my warning on this. Not many of you, not, not all of you, not a lot of you, but not many of you should become teachers in the church. Now that seems like a strange thing to say because teachers are good. I have to say that. Teachers are good. I'm married to one. And, and how, how, how can you say you ever have enough teachers? But, but James has heard and knows that there's an explosion of teachers in the gatherings in the church around the world. And he says, teachers who have come to the fore with good and with not so good, with noble and not so noble credentials. Good and not so noble motives. There are those of you who are looking for a public platform, he says, looking to, to raise your profile in the church. There are those who are new to the faith and they feel like they have had such a radical transformation in their life that they should be handed a microphone and given the opportunity to, to train or to teach about what they've experienced. Their understanding of the ways of God and the nature of God is limited, but they feel so rich in their first-hand, joyful, transformational experience that they think that gives them a platform. And James says this gift of teaching others the ways of God is a heavy responsibility. And you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to lead people in the wrong direction. You don't want to take them away from God. If you're a teacher, you want to know what you're talking about. You want to be certain of the direction that you're leading. You want to be speaking truth and not opinion. Not only for your own reputation, but for the good of the people that have been entrusted to you and for another good reason as well. James says, we who teach will be judged more strictly. The message states it in this way. Teaching is highly responsible work. Teachers are held to the strictest of standards. Teachers don't only test and evaluate their students, but teachers who teach in the church will be tested, will be evaluated. And not in a loosey-goosey fashion, but according to the strictest of God's standards. You're sitting here and you say, well, Pastor Bill, that has nothing to do with me. I have no desire to be a teacher in this church. Get to the part that speaks to me. But this does affect us. It affects you. It affects me. It affects all of us. You see, we'll be evaluated on what we say. Teaching is one example of that assessment process. However, we will all have to face the fact that our words have impact and consequence. Not, not just the mean or angry words that have flown out of our mouths when we are raging against some injustice that has occurred in our world, but the words of doubt. The, the, the words that have raised questions about the goodness and faithfulness of God. The, the, the words that have stripped people of their dignity, of, of their confidence. The conversations that have caused division. The, the, the things that have been said that have damaged people and damaged relationships and damaged faith-filled atmospheres. We will give account for that. We will all give account for that. Teacher or not, we all need to grab a hold of this truth. We are accountable for what we say. 
I've been writing that over and over and over again this week, and I have come several times this week to think, I'm going to go to the Peter Lougheed and just have my lips sewn shut. I think that would be a good idea for me. Add to that understanding that you and I will give an account. Let me just back up a bit. So so we better be careful about what we say. Remember the words and the wise counsel that came to us in chapter 1 of James. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and even more slow in getting angry. Add to that you will give an account for everything that you say. So James moves on to verse 2 of that same chapter. Indeed, we all make mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect or complete and could also control ourselves in every other way. James isn't speaking about other people. He's not speaking to other people. He's speaking to his church family and to himself. We all, James says, make mistakes in what we say. I want you to quickly go through the list of the 10 most embarrassing moments in your life. Just quickly pull them together in your brain. 10 most embarrassing moments in your life. And count how many of those would not have made the list if you had just been able to keep quiet. You need to know of my 10 most embarrassing moments, nine would have been avoided if I had have just Clap the trap. Nine. Had I just remained silent, not said what I did, things would have been fine, but I opened my mouth and said things that should not have been said or should have been said differently or said at a different time or to a different person. If we could control our tongues, James says, if we only knew how to filter our words and not say the things that should not have been said, then we would be better, stronger, more effective people. We would be completely disciplined. We know how to discipline ourselves in so many areas. When we hear the alarm clock, we get up and we discipline ourselves to move ahead with the day. We know how to respond to an order from our boss. We do what we've been hired to do. We understand that children need to be cared for and fed and, and, and cleaned and trained and put to sleep. And, and we do that. We, we take pets or you take pets for a walk. You, you make sure that they have food and water and a quiet, safe place to sleep. You, you have that discipline. We are disciplined in so many areas, but our tongues, our words, the words we speak, that's a different matter. I'll repeat this many times today, and I want you to get a hold of this truth in such a way that it'll haunt you until at least Thursday. Words carry power. If you're going to wield and use powerful tools, you need to know how to use them for good and you need to be aware of the effect and the impact that they have if they are misused. And James says there's an incredible power to your words and if they're misused, they can cause incredible damage. James gives this illustration. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. 
And a small rudder makes a huge, huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. A four-inch metal bit put into the mouth of a 2,000-pound Clydesdale can make him go wherever you want. The sea-wise giant, the largest ship on earth, it's five football fields long and it carries 4.1 million barrels of oil. And it has this tiny little rudder that makes up 0.03% of the weight of that massive ship. But it has the power to, to steer that ship through wind and waves and get it to its port of destination. Small things that have powerful abilities. And he says, this tongue of ours is one of them. Verse 5. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness. Listen to that, your tongue. It's a whole world of, of wickedness. Corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Now, if you were thinking of getting a tattoo, that might be a good tattoo to put on. <laughs> Just a reminder, something that every time you go to open your mouth, there it is, and you can be reminded. I don't want to use this thing that's been set on fire by hell itself. I grew up in a church, and as a young teen, we used to sing this song that I hated. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. You know that song? Hate it. Hate it. Anyways, um, James says that it only takes a spark to light up and destroy an entire forest. And in the same way, this little insignificant blob of flesh called the tongue has this same incredible power. It can make grand speeches. I, I, I can give you the snippets of, of some famous speeches and, and you'll be able to recall who said it and what, the, what, what was going on in world history at that moment. It was Martin Luther King who stood on the Washington Mall and said, I have a dream. It was Churchill on the radio encouraging wartime Britain that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Those are words, speeches that inspired nations and unified and motivated people in a history-making moment. However, the tongue can also be destructive. The tongue, our words, used recklessly can cause massive damage to individuals, to families, to nations. Words can light your world on fire, James says. The tongue can can represent a whole world of wickedness. It can corrupt your entire body. It can set your whole world, your whole life on fire. Your, your words can be inspired, can be fed, can be directed to burn the whole world to the ground by the powers of hell. Oh, James, tell us what you really mean. How are you really feeling about the tongue? 
the writer of Proverbs 18.21 says this, Words can kill. Words can give life. They're either poisonous or fruit of life. You choose. Your words, my words, have the ability to kill. My words have the the ability to give life. They can either be poison or life-giving fruit. I make a choice about what I do with the words of my mouth. I can build or I can destroy with my choice of words. I can create or I can crush with my words. I can reconcile or I can cause division. But Scripture makes it clear. I might be inspired by heaven or by hell, but it is me that chooses, and it's me that will be held responsible for what I say. There's incredible power in our words. We will be held responsible for the way we use that ability. I love words. I love working with words. Eric's always getting on me to trim them down a little bit. Why do you need 5,000 when you can use 500? And I'm always saying, but we have 5 million. We've we got to use them all, you know. I, I, I love words. I, I enjoy creative, masterful use of words. I, I've studied the major influences and inspirations that have come to me over these last six plus decades. So many wonderful people who came to this nerdy, skinny kid who lacked confidence and clarity as to who he was and what his purpose in life was and spoke life to me. But what's more... Some of the darkest nights of my soul have been the result of words that have come from people that I thought could be trusted. People that I thought were wise. People who seemed to want to invest in me and my life. And yet their words came as a blunt force object and bludgeoned me. And before you feel bad for me, what's more is I fear that my history, my My speech history has been marked by those two extremes as well. I have hopefully spoken life and help and strength to people over the years, but I have also become aware that I have on occasion, on more occasions that I want to say, have spoken death, damage, and destruction. I've become aware that I can do both of those things on the same day, sometimes only minutes apart from each other. Words have the power of life or death, and the choice as to what way they will be used is all mine. Verse 7. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises the Lord our Father. Sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. We, we have so many programs on TV. We, we have so many experts who can train dolphins to swim alongside of you and then at the end of the time give you a peck on the cheek and swim away. 
We, we have trainers that can make apes and birds and great mammals do all sorts of stunts for, for movies and for our entertainment. We, we can make dogs specialists in detecting when a, when a patient has cancer or is going into a seizure. We know how to do that. We can tame beasts that are both great and small. But we can't seem to get a hold of, to tame, to train this tongue just to stop talking. It's a bit of a shock to see that James says that no one can tame the tongue. It's an untamed beast. It's part of us. It's part of us that wants to make sure that if we're hurt, other people hurt too. It has an unbalanced justice system that wants to measure out and mete out punishment before all the evidence is in and before a proper just verdict has been reached. So it can be lost in worship and praise and thanksgiving in this room, declaring how good and faithful and gracious God is in all his works. But before it makes it to the front door, it can slice, dice, and julienne a person, one of God's beloved creations, a person that God says is valuable and lovable and the recipient of his grace. It can bless but it can curse the very thing that God has made and called good. We, we can stand right up here at the front of the church at the end of a service and have a conversation as friends and, and we can build each other up in the most holy faith and without notice or forethought, that conversation can suddenly come to a halt and take a serious left turn and end up destroying a friendship and causing all sorts of collateral damage. It's happened. It's happened here in this room. It's happened to me. It's happened to you, I'm sure. James says, if we understood the damage that is done, if we understood before the conversation took a turn for the worse, what the devastation of our words was going to be, we would stop talking. But we don't. But we don't. Verse 10. And so, blessing... And cursing come pouring out of this same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does, does a spring of, of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter waters? D does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? N no. And, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. In the foyer, just between the printer and the uh, printing room and the and the bathroom, we have a, a fountain, and the water that comes out of that fountain is cold and refreshing every time. It can be counted on for refreshment. However, if there was some some kind of tweak on it, something that made it not work like it was supposed to, and, and so that on the thirty sixth time that it's used. Rather than fresh water, the water that came out of it is ocean salty water. And because it's a, a fluid crowd that moves through here day after day and, and no one is counting how many people use it, no one knows, no one can predict when the ocean water comes out. It would soon not be used at all. 
It, it would be a useless piece of equipment because the reputation it gains every time a small child gets a mouthful of salty water and starts to cry or an adult shouts, ooh, yuck! Because rather than quenching thirst, that fountain deepened thirst. The same thing happens if we don't control our words. There can be a life-giving stream of encouragement and kindness and faith and instruction. And then suddenly, without warning, devastating salty water, all of a sudden a forest fire is ignited. And then the best thing we can say is that we didn't see that coming which is not really a helpful piece of information when you're looking to, to sew up the wounds from the release of a mighty, salty surge. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, this ought not to ever take place among us. This isn't right. It should never be. We want this to be a safe place, a place where people who are coming in for help and healing and encouragement in life can come and be found to receive consistent love and life-giving words. Just like you, we don't expect salt water out of a fresh well or olives off a fig tree or figs off a grapevine. You, you, you should not expect to be roasted and toasted by the family of God. But, but it happens. And, and I can't answer for anyone else other than myself. I can't lecture you until I've had this outstanding personal and encouraging um, talk with myself. I, I don't have a perfect record. As James says, we all make mistakes. Know this, I'm speaking to me this morning and you're invited to pick up whatever's helpful and take it home with you. But God intended kingdom purpose for our tongue. We talked in chapter 1 about the role of an ambassador. When a nation appoints a representative from their nation to go and speak on behalf of its government and people to another government and people, there's an understanding that the ambassador loses his right and privilege to speak what comes to his mind. He or she loses the ability to sound out on their own personal opinion or perspective. They speak only what and when the government tells them to speak in the tone of the government that wants the message delivered. The ambassador does that in the full knowledge that his government knows more than he has access to know at that moment. He represents his government and in order to represent that government well, he must control and limit his speech to only what the government has asked him to say. And you and I are ambassadors of God. We represent his kingdom. We represent his values. We represent the world the way, or we represent him the way the world will see and understand him, who he is and what he's like, only as well as we accurately represented him, represent him with our words and the way that we live. James says we need to learn to get discipline over our mouths. If we could control our mouth, 
our tongues, he says, we, we would be perfect. We would be controlled. We, we, we would be so disciplined in every other way. When, when we learn to discipline our speech, other things would come into alignment, would come into agreement with the plan and the purpose of God in our life. When we manage our speech well, life gets better. I find it very interesting that as you're going through social media these days, they don't know what they're doing, but they're on a rant these days about cultivating an attitude of gratitude. The power of your words, the life change that comes through speaking and giving positive messages. And all they're doing, and they're not sure that they're doing it, but they're mimicking Solomon in Proverbs and the instruction of James here. Our words create an environment. We choose with our words if we live in a lush garden or if we live in an arid desert. If we control our tongues, our words, the rest of the world, of our world, will be affected. I wish I had ten helpful hints or six safe practices or three mighty disciplines to give to you. James doesn't do that in this chapter. He seems to leave us to wrestle with our problem personally and get so desperate in front of God that we seek out his counsel and we ask for his power to help control this mighty tongue, this beast known as the power of our own speech. I, I have made some observations in my own life that I'm, I'm learning to put into practice and I want to underline the word learning. I haven't mastered them. I'm learning and, and the first is that words create atmosphere. If, if today you were devastated by some news that you received or by an event that takes place or, or words that were spoken to you or about to you, who would you take your phone and call for, for comfort? Who, who would you pick up and tell about it? If you were feeling lethargic and unmotivated and had a major assignment that needed to be finished by Friday and yet you just can't get the oomph to get up and get it done, it will take seven days to complete and now you're down to six. And, and if that's the case, who would you call to give you the kick in the seat of the pants that you need to get going? Who would you call? And, and if you have an emergency need... Something that overwhelms you. Who do you reach out to? Who do you call and say, can you pray for me? I'm sure that in all of those, at least one person came to mind when you face those situations. And the reason is that almost always they can create the atmosphere, be it calming, be it motivating or comforting, that, that because of the words that they give to you, they create an atmosphere in your world. I was as a child, privileged to be very close in proximity and emotionally to my grandparents, both my paternal and maternal grandparents. And uh, our, our family owned and operated a motel just 500 yards from where I stand now, straight north. And we lived there, and it was chaotic, and it was intense, and it was pressure-filled, and it was a 24-7 family operation. And so when, as a child, I needed comfort or my parents were involved with putting out one of the many fires or the most recent crisis in the family business, and they were too busy, I knew how to go and find my grandma. 
I knew how to go find my grandfather. And there I could find comfort and help and safety from those two dear people. They could create with their love and their words. They could create an atmosphere that made this little child feel safe. Because words have that ability. And I I want to be known, I want my life to be known as an atmospheric specialist. Uh, Someone trained, someone skilled at, at creating an atmosphere that is both helpful and challenging. So that you don't just stay here in the warm fuzzies, but that you go on to do and be who you were meant to be. In order to do that, I have to learn how to control my tongue. I have to remember the words of instruction from chapter 1. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Don't don't lose that helpful set of keys that unlocks so many doors for your future. And if I do control my speech, I have to have three understandings. And I've, I've borrowed these from, and I've adapted them, the three R's from the green movement. If you're not a tree hugger, don't put me to death. I'm just, I'm just stealing their words, okay? I'm, I'm not espousing what they're standing for. But here's the first one. Words recycle. I was an English guy and not a great science guy, but I understand a tiny bit about rain. I understand it falls, it pools, it evaporates, it's stored in the heavens until the conditions are right, and then it falls again. Rinse and repeat. Words work in a very similar way. We often talk about the law of the harvest. What you plant is what you reap. If you plant corn sparingly, then you get a small harvest of corn. If you sow flowers generously, then you'll get lots and lots of bouquets of blooms. If you're merciful with people, then then mercy will come back to you when you most need that mercy. What you do with your words comes back to you. They recycle. Kindness begets kindness. Anger gives birth to more rage. Life follows life. Death follows death. I was 17 years old when I got into the car to drive to British Columbia to become a first-year college student. I didn't know who I was. I was very insecure. I found a great deal of difficulty identifying where I was going or who I should be. And so I found my identity from being the class clown. I know that that's hard for you to believe. But saying witty, clever things at inappropriate times that caused people to laugh out loud That was my 1976 version of a like or a thumbs up. I would sit with the cool people in chapel and make caustic comments about the guest speakers, about their lectures, about things that I thought they shouldn't have said. And if I got a laugh, then I felt like I had fulfilled my duty and that I was a person of value and of worth. That was immaturity. That was the 17-year-old me. 
The problem was is that that's what I sowed. And so I soon found myself at the end of my college career and standing on a platform with a microphone in front of my mouth every week. And I realized at that moment that somewhere in the crowd there was another Bill Olson apprentice in every audience making comments about what I was saying and how I was saying it. And it made me very nervous. It made me very anxious. It caused me to be fearful. It is when I started changing the material that I was recycling that my life recycled in a different way. I determined, I determined to look for the good and to affirm the positive. And when needed to be, I would use constructive criticism rather than be the hurricane that, that brought destruction with my words. I haven't mastered it yet, but in comparison to the 1976 version of myself, I'm a dream now. I'm a dream. What I sow with my words is what I will reap. Not just nasty or critical, but in areas of faith as well. I have found in recent months saying to God things like this. I don't understand all that's going on right now. It's a mystery to me. It looks chaotic and pretty messy, but I am finite and you are infinite. And I choose to trust you with all my heart. And I choose not to lean on my own understanding, but instead acknowledge you in all my ways. And I will be confident that you will direct my steps. And those words are true. And those words come out of Scripture. And it's honest and true, and it's built according to Scripture, but I can't go wrong. I'm sowing faith so that I can reap harvest of blessing down the road. I'm not only into recycling and understanding about recycling, but I need to reduce my words. I, I've been a talker. All my life I've been ta a talker. My, my grandpa uh, lived with us, and... And we lived over there, as I said, and, and 36th Street was just a, a mud trail, really. And I remember five-year-old Bill getting in beside my grandpa. We were going to Forest Lawn to pick up the, the mail. And we got to 17th Avenue, and I remember stopping at the stoplight, and grandpa looking to me, and he says, Billy, do you ever run out of words? <laughs> the answer was no. And, and, and Debbie can affirm and confirm that... After 34 years of marriage, I haven't run out of words. I'd get up in the morning while she's putting on her makeup, and I'd sit at the edge of the tub, and I'd just talk to her. And finally, she just turned to me and said, until I've had a cup of coffee, you can't talk to me. <laughs> That's not a reflection on her. That's a reflection on me. My brain doesn't have the space to take in all the information. However, I've been on a reduce the volume and the quantity plan for the last number of years. The New Living Translation interprets Proverbs 10:19 this way, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. The message puts it this way, the more talk, the less truth. The wise measure their words. We're told that 
women speak 50,000 words, men speak 30,000 words, but we don't have to speak all 50 or 30,000 of them. Measure them. There's a trend in conversation called stream of consciousness. Just saying out loud whatever comes to the mind. If you think it, just say it. And, and James says, no, stop, quit. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Reduce your words. Stop, think, measure impact and results about what you speak. And finally, reclaim your ability to control your words. Be sure to understand that words have power, be good or bad. You, you, you can build something beautiful or you can start a forest fire and burn the woodlands to the ground. Be sure to understand that you will reap the results of the words you speak, so speak life. Don't avoid difficult situations. Address them as they need to be addressed, but... But build reconciliation. Don't build walls. Don't build division. Paul writes about filtering our thoughts, which is good because the Scripture teaches that our words inform others of what's going on inside our being. Out of the fullness of what's happening in my heart, my mouth tells you what's going on. So if your, your words are sharp, angry, or caustic, there's a problem on the inside that needs to be addressed so that your speech is affected and improved. You, you can't skip, skip that step. Deal with the inside so that the change that needs to be made happens before it comes out of your lips. But, but the filter that Paul uses is the filter that I'm trying to build into my words and the way that I speak. Before I say them, I'm thinking of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4. Is what I'm about to say true? If I was taken to court, could I prove them to be extremely accurate? Are they honorable words? Is it something that I want to be remembered for saying? Is it right? Is it in alignment with what my king would want me to say? Is it pure? Does it make people feel better or does it slime people out? Is it lovely or kind? Everyone is wrestling with situations that we know nothing about, so be kind. Be kind always. You can never be too kind. Is it worthy of excellence and praise? Does it build up and not tear down? The message takes that, that verse and it puts it this way. Summing it all up, friends, I... I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you've learned from me and what you heard and saw and realized. Do that, do that, and God who makes everything work together will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Isn't that beautiful? If you control what you say, and if you say 
what is good and honest and good report. God will somehow take all that we are, mistakes and all, and he will, he will make them into the most excellent of harmonies. So much material to cover, but, but we're coming to the communion table, and I'm asking the band to come and get ready. And, and, I, and I want us to understand that as we come to this table of communion today, it's a, it's a recommitment opportunity for each one of us. It, it's a moment for us to understand that we have been sent to the kingdom at this time for divine purpose. None of you, none of you are here by accident. None of you are here by accident. You're here on divine purpose and divine call. God has called you to the kingdom for this time. And he's preparing you in this season where we're connecting and where we're reading the word and serving and learning and praying and in inviting our friends to be a part and, and giving generously. All of that is so that we are the people that he wants us to be because he's opening doors that no man can close so that we will walk through. And where there's hopelessness, we can speak words of hope. Where there's people who have never experienced what real, genuine love is. We can be the representation of the love of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son, and now he wants to give you to the world. We're here on a divine purpose. If we're going to be who we were meant to be, we have to be ambassadors of the king who came not to condemn the world, but to bring hope to the world. I don't want us to be known as a church primarily that are against this and this and this and that and we don't like that person or that person or that person. And we don't stand for this lifestyle or make room for that kind of person. I want us to be known as a, as a church that loves and speaks life and brings light and builds bridges rather than walls. I want us to be a people that so represent Jesus that even if they've never heard of him, never read his word, they know what he's like because they know you. And so as we come to this table of communion this morning, I want to speak to you from Romans chapter 12. And so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This truly is the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think, and I will add the way that you speak. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing. So we come to the table of communion this morning. A little bit of information.